We would be remiss not to stop and say one of the ways and marks of a healthy church is that in how we give back to God as our way of worship and as our way of of telling God that we are full of gratitude for the gifts and the the blessings that that he's given. And as we do that, we have to ask the question this morning, as we've asked uh, so many weeks now that we've been in this series, can a church truly be fit if it's filled with members who neglect or push away the biblical call of giving back to God and supporting the local church. Now, right away, I recognize this morning that I just got a whole bunch of people worked up. I recognize that it is in many ways taboo for a pastor uh, to speak on the subject of money and giving. I recognize that people are getting nervous, and, and I want to remind those who have been a part of Village Bible Church with any regularity that we are serious about following God and following His Word, no matter how taboo uh, subject matters can be. In fact, some of our uh, most taboo subjects we usually hit on major holidays, like Mother's Day and and Christmas Sundays and and all of that. And you can go to our website and see some of Tim's greatest messages done on some of the weirdest of days. But statistics tell us that the reason why there's such a disdain for uh, teaching like this, even within a church like Village Bible, is that we are quick as followers of Jesus Christ to confess and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is awesome. And it's commendable for a people like ourselves to do that on a regular basis. Herein lies the problem. Our wallets and our checkbooks haven't gotten the message Study after study shows that evangelicals give on average about 2 to 3% back to the Lord in charitable giving, which may seem like a lot, but it's about 1.5% of people who never attend church altogether. So we're a half a percentage point better than our unsaved neighbors and friends with regards to our generosity. Now, this must have been a pattern in the, new, in the times of the Scriptures because the Bible speaks more than 2,300 different times on the subject of money and generosity. More than 125 different biblical principles in the New Testament alone focus on this particular subject matter. So the Bible seems to get us a sense that there's a good indication of where my heart is and where your heart is and where our priorities are through the use or misuse of the money that God gives us. And based on that amount that the Bible speaks on this subject, I'm here to tell you that it seems that God is obviously far more serious about money than many of us wish that he really was. So what keeps us from this? What, what, what trips us up on this subject? Before we even get into our outline this morning, I want you to notice two very profound things that our money does for us. Number one, because we receive money as a result of our labors that we work and we get paid to do it, our money has a way of defining us. It has a way of defining us, meaning the more money I have, the more I can see the results of what I've done. Now, many of you know, if you're a new person here, you don't know, but I have another job, and that job is I run a catering business. And I can prove to you that I'm a really good caterer if you see me driving a great new car, if you see me uh, in a 
beautiful new home, if you see me wearing all the designer clothes, uh, all of that, if I can prove to you that, that I've got lots of money, I can probably prove to you that I'm a pretty good worker, that I'm successful. You see, money has a way of defining who we are. But notice it also shows or displays our priorities. It's a way for us to make a statement. When we are able to show the world what we have as a result of the money that we have been able to buy or purchase these things, it helps people to see that if I've invested a lot of money into my home, people can say, a really, really nice home is important to Tim and Amanda. If I've gone and bought the car with all of the bells and whistles and all of the upgrades and everything, and, and, and I have a smile on my face every time I talk about that vehicle, you're going to know that I am all about my cars. If I show you the great threads I got at the big and tall store, okay, and talk about, man, you know, nothing but the best, Italian leather this, and, and uh, you know, wonderful, I don't know what's even in, cotton, polyester, I don't think polyester's in anymore, but, but, but if I was to explain all that, you would say, you know what, Tim is really passionate about his clothing, and look, he puts his money where his mouth is. What I want you to know is that we show the world where we're at in how we use our money. But here's the problem. If our money is about us and our needs and, and our desires alone, that may be fine for a non-believer who can give two rips about Jesus Christ. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are living for your money and your money's living for you, then listen, you're a contradiction in terms. You've missed the boat. It's all messed up. Now next week we're going to start a series out of the book of Colossians, under the title of a word that we don't use very often, the word preeminent. It's a weighty word. What it means is first and foremost, and we'll talk more about it, but it, the book of Colossians is a study of Christ being first and foremost in our world and in our lives, in our worship, in everything. He is to have first place. And that's important for us to remember because as a follower of Jesus Christ, the way I use my money will describe and display if Jesus really is important to me. It's been said that stewardship, listen to this, stewardship is everything I do after I say I believe. Let that sink in for a moment. Stewardship is everything that I do after I say I believe. So on the subject matter of money and generosity, we have to ask the question, is it really what I believe? Do I really believe God is our all in all, as we've sung about this morning, that Christ is truly enough for me if our money doesn't show it? You see, we've got to be careful. So the scriptures are going to help us this morning, and I'm going to be all over the place, so get your pens ready, pull that outline sheet so you can follow along, and we're going to understand what God's Word has to say under the heading that stewardship is lordship. We're going to hit that over and over again, and that's my goal, that's my aim. And where I want to start is Matthew chapter 6 this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6. 
And, and I'm not going to apply anything. We've already studied this last year in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to hear from Jesus himself on this subject matter. And so if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and turn to page 811. Page 811, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's give reverence to our Savior speaking to us. And then we'll ask God's blessing. We'll jump right into this very difficult subject matter, but one that is totally necessary for our day today. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Yet you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Turn to verse 33. He finishes it this way. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Father God, I pray that you could speak through your, your servant today. And I pray that I would disappear this morning. And that your word would speak to your people. I know, Lord, that some have already put up their guard. Some have already come with excuses. And Lord, uh, some have said, this is why I don't like church. Lord, you have worked in my own heart this week on the subject of money. And you have reminded me that this is important for your people to hear so that we may have opportunity for you to bless our steps of obedience. Not according to the world's economy, but according to yours, and that's good enough for us. And so, Lord, let us sit under this teaching and hear it for ourselves, for our own lives, so that you may impact it in a powerful way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So how do we begin to put all of our life, including our money, under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I've got five points this morning. I'm going to move through them quickly uh, so we can understand what the Scriptures say on this subject. But what we first need to do is, is we've got to see the problem. So we have to recognize the problem that we as Christians have <clears throat> today. We've got a problem. We need to admit it because the, the, the world has told us a great axiom. Admitting your problem is the first step of recovery. Brothers and sisters, we've got a problem in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. All throughout Scripture, we have been told over and over and over again, we have a job to do. And that job as followers of Jesus Christ is to be a light in a dark world, to be beacons of hope in a world of despair, to be ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can win people out of their sin and into the kingdom of God. Preaching and proclaiming the message of God's grace. 
And there's no place that we need more of the preaching and teaching of God's grace and and his love for us and, and his call to obedience in this world than in our use, or might I say, our misuse of money. Let's just be real for a moment. Our government needs some help in that, amen? Okay, 17 trillion reasons why we've got a problem. Our families need it. The average credit card debt that's, that's plaguing uh, is in the tens of thousands of dollars now. We, we have families that need it. Our friends need it. And we have the opportunity to be that light, to be that beacon of hope. But here's the problem. Christians, instead of leading in financial integrity, instead of leading in financial stability, instead of following the ways of God and showing the world this is how God intended you to use money, instead of leading leading in that way, we bought into a lie. We bought into a lie just like the rest, and it totally makes us obsolete to be able to tell the dying world that their life is out of order, including the way they spend their money, because uh, statistics tell us that our money problem is no different than that of the world. And so we have negated our ability to serve the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, not only when it comes to our salvation, but how God has called us to use our money that he's given us. Well, what's the lie? We've bought into the lie as Christians that our money, first of all, brings or buys satisfaction. That it buys satisfaction. We're about to enter into the Christmas season. And, of course, you, like like me, You're being bombarded with advertisements on the TV. You're being bombarded by, if I hear one more of the elves singing about Menard's Merry Merry Christmas, I'll die. It's not even Thanksgiving. And so we're being bombarded with that. We're being bombarded with the ads. I'll go home and I'll read the Chicago Tribune as I do each week. And and what will be the biggest part of the newspaper but the ads? And they're going to say to me, listen, I'm going to open them up. And and it's weird what happens because I start hearing voices. You need this. Tim, you got to have it. And and, and it starts sparkling and stars grow all around it. And and it it just starts, there's spotlights that go on it. And I say, but I got four of those. And they say, you need five. You have no room to put it anywhere in your house. We'll find room just by me. And we've bought into this. And the reason why is because advertisers know that if they can make something look significant in our lives, if you will, if that they can get you to get the idea that you are lost without this item, then, then you'll be fine. And we hate it when we see it in our kids. Not too long ago, my son was, was having a birthday coming and and he, I said, son, what do you want for your birthday? And he says, dad, I gotta have this. Everybody has it. And if I don't have it, I will. Okay, just a word of, of prayer. My son's still alive and his birthday passed. And, and listen, he didn't get what he was asking for. Okay? But we see it in our kids and we shake our heads and we're like, oh, how? Oh, I'm so glad, child, I'm not like you. Hmm. We think we're going to die. And the Bible tells us over and over again that a bigger house and a newer car and new clothes and new technology 
while there's a hunger in us to be satisfied, Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, just write this passage down, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If you think that that you collecting enough stuff is, is going to make you happy, you have barked up the wrong tree. People are unhappy. Some of the most unhappy people are the people that have everything you could ever imagine. So we need to be careful with that. Notice the second lie is that of significance. That if I buy things, I'll be able to be significant. Remember, money shows the world how significant I am. It wasn't too long ago my boys had done some working for me, and I paid them a wage and, and gave them their, their pay. And we had some friends come over right, right after that had taken place. And I don't know why my boys do this, but, but they come down, and all of them, it's like they're out of Kenny Rogers, the gambler. They've got their, their money fanned out, okay? And they said, look how much money I have. I am rich, Why would they do that? Because they have been a part of a world long enough, only seven, eight years for some of them, that when you have a handful of money, you're significant. You're important. And while we don't do that as adults, we don't show our, we don't come into church or or into our, our dinner parties and show, hey, take a look at my fifth third statement. Take a look at this. You know, hey, have you seen the stock market? Look at what I'm... We usually don't do that. There's, there's a tact to that. So what do we do? We buy things that people inevitably have to see to know we are significant people. Look at the car they drive. Look at where they live. They're pretty important. They've got their things put together. And this is a lie by the devil. In Ecclesiastes, again, Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live, says this. He says, then I considered that my ha- of what my hands have done and the toil that I have used to expend in doing them all. In essence, he looks at all his projects and says, look at what my money has bought me. And he says, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So if you think you're going to get your significance by what you're building, you've, you've missed the point. You've, you've missed the entire idea of what significance really is. Notice the final one is security. Security. Now, many of you will say, Tim, right away, I, I don't have that problem. That's the person sitting next to me in the pew. That's their problem, those two things. Um, but the one that, that, that I know many of us are going to struggle with is that we see our money as a security blanket. So as long as I've got money in my account then I'm good. And money becomes, in this area, our our Savior instead of Christ. We, when trials come, instead of getting on our knees, try to figure out how much we can cash advance on our checking account or on our credit cards, we have taken and made our money Christ and not Jesus. Solomon again reminds us of this and in Proverbs 23. For those who think that your, your wealth or, or your money is your security, notice in uh, Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light up on it, it's already gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. 
You know who learned this lesson in a very, very difficult way? Was one of the most famous people in all of the world, Steve Jobs. Creator of the iPad that I'm using to preach this message to you. A man of great significance, a man of great wealth. When he died, his own personal holdings, listen, uh, were $6.7 billion. That's not what the company was worth. That was just his own personal nest egg, if you will. $6.7 billion. Let me ask you this with all due respect for a man who, who is no longer here. What good was that $6.7 billion when he was dying from pancreatic cancer? His money took wings and flew away. Wouldn't do anything. It couldn't buy a cure. Again, Solomon says, this pursuit of wealth to be our security is a lie of the devil. So stop doing it. Number two, if we're going to get this figured out, we've got to recognize the problem we've got, and then we've got to then pivot to, to remember God's perspective on things. So we hear God says, no, don't put your significance, don't put your satisfaction and your security in the things of wealth or in the things of money or the things of this world. And so God then says, but put them, understand that you've got to put them under my lordship. Why? Because God's got a perspective. One of the reasons why we're so messed up as Christians on the issue of money and giving is we, we, we begin from a false starting point. It's flawed. We think that money is something that I've, bought, I've gotten because I've worked with my hands or used my mind to get it, then I should be able to use my hands or my mind to determine where it's going to go. Because you think and I think we are the originators of our wealth. But understand the Bible's very clear on this. There are two things you must remember if we're going to get this thing right. Number one, God is the supplier and sustainer of all things. So instead of talking about it, I'm just going to read to you what God's Word says on this subject matter. God is taking ownership of things. Listen to what he says and and write these passages down. Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means everything in the earth. Deuteronomy 10, 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it are his. Psalm 50, verse 10, for every animal of the forest is mine, even the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50, verse 12, the world is mine and all that is in it. Haggai 2, 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And right when you thought that nothing was in your hands except now you've got me, all I have is myself, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have gotten from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is why one of the favorite quotes of any man that has lived on this earth is a quote by Abraham Kuyper for me, where he says there is not one square inch of all of creation of which Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, it belongs to me. 
but you say, I work hard for my money. I should be able to do with it whatever I want. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them are to accept his lot, rejoice in his toil, for all of this is a gift from God. So let me shoot straight with you for a moment. And don't miss this. When we refrain from giving back to God what is rightfully His, you enter into a shouting match with God over your stuff. You become what I remember when my kids were toddlers, when they would put their hands on one, other, one of the other brother's things, and you would hear, that's mine. Get your hands off of that or else. When we take the, the posture that our money is ours and our house is ours and our car is ours and our body is ours and, and all the things that we have in this world are ours, what we say to God is, get your hands off of my stuff. And what we need to recognize is that may work with your little brother. That may work with someone in your workplace or in your neighborhood, but listen, you will always lose that battle with the God of the universe. So stop telling him to stop touching his stuff. Why? Because God says every good and perfect gift comes from me from above. God says he opposes prideful living that thinks that you're better than God. And God says in Malachi 3.8 that when you start closing your hands on the things that God has given, God says, you're robbing me of the stuff that is mine. Many of us wouldn't dare steal from another human being, but that's exactly what's happening when we neglect to give back to God what is rightfully his. So let us never forget This isn't Tim talking. This is God talking to us. God says, I'm the supplier and I'm the sustainer. It's all my stuff. It would all be gone in a blink of an eye if I wasn't sustaining it. So what are we then to do? Well, we are stewards of God's stuff. That's the second important stewardship principle. We are stewards of God's stuff. What that means is, and we know from the book of Genesis, God creates this perfect garden. There's food and there's water. There's plants and animals. It's a place of utter perfection. And after God builds his garden, he places man and woman in the middle of it. And he says to man and woman, this is my garden, but I want you to tend to my garden. I want you to have dominion over this garden, never forgetting that I'm in charge of this, that this is my garden. You can enjoy it, but there's a rule to it. Listen, you're never in charge if there's a rule that you have to follow. So when God says, by the way, Adam and Eve, there's a rule, there's one rule, and it was a reminder when God says about that tree in the middle of the garden, when he says that, God says, don't forget I own this place. Don't forget it. And so what happens? I want you to understand that the issue in the garden is a stewardship issue because what they forgot is that God's the owner. And what they said is, why should God tell us not to eat of this tree? Because it's our garden. We've tended to it. We've worked it. We want to be like God in that way. And we need to recognize that we are stewards 
of the garden, if you will, that God has given us. He's given us these wonderful things, and we are stewards of it. And I, I'll tell you, I fully recognize this and understand this. Many of you know I run a catering business. I'm the general manager of a company called 5Bs. I have custodial rights to the well-being of the facilities, the employees, the equipment, even the finances of that catering company. But I want you to know something. I don't own a penny of it. Not a dime, not a nickel, not a penny of it. It's my mom and my dad's. They started it. They poured their money into it. They pay me a fair wage for it. And here's the thing that I need to know. I cannot tell people this is my business. It's not. And you know when I recognize that? When my dad comes, and he does every quarter, he comes into my office, and he says it's time to do an accounting of the business. So let's talk profitability. Let's talk performance. Let's talk numbers. And I really begin to recognize my place. This ain't mine. This is his. It belongs to him. He's given me the job to oversee it as God has given us the job to oversee the things he's given because he's given us gifts, our time, our talents, our treasure, our testimony, are all gifts. And Jesus over and over again in story after story in his ministry here on earth talks about masters who would, would go off for a long trip and before they did, they would give a portion of their, of their estate to their servants. And they were to be given not to take as their own as if it was an inheritance, but an investment for that servant to use and invest so that when the master came back, he would be able to show that he's been faithful in, in taking what has been given to him and managing it well. And so he goes, and he goes away, and the, the servants live as they, as they want, some of them being unfruitful in their living, some of them investing with great accuracy the things that the master would desire, and everything's all fine for all of them until the day that the master comes home. And he asks for an accounting of what has been done. Romans 14, 12 says, Each of us will one day give an account of what we have done for him. Can I add that some of the harshest language in all of Scripture that Jesus shares is for stewards of his who fail to be kingdom-minded with the gifts God has given. He calls people like that wicked and worthless. So it's altogether necessary for us as a people to not only understand, but to live out biblical stewardship now before it's too late. Get that in your mind. God is the supplier. We are the stewards. And God is going to one day come and ask for an accounting of what we've done with what he's given. So right away, some of you are scared to death, and rightly so. We should all take a step back and say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, I, I want to be ready when my master comes back. I want to be able to give an account and, and be able to, to be found faithful in that moment, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not lazy, wicked servant who is worthless. So what do I do? Where do I go? How, where do I turn to? We turn to God. Notice the third point this morning is if we want to get this giving thing down, this, this stewardship thing, we need to reflect the pattern of giving that God displays. Did you know the reason that we give as Christians is not, listen, it's not because the coffers of heaven are running dry. We don't get to, you know, Pastor Keith doesn't get a telegram from our boss upstairs. Hey, hey, push giving. We're, we're a little light up here. 
We had some capital investments up in the clouds that we needed to deal with, and it's left us a little low on our cash flow. So, so push your people down there uh, to give a little more. Listen, the reason why we give isn't because, and listen to me, this is important, because if you don't, God's not going to take care of his people or his church. That's not the reason. You don't think God can take care of this? He's done it before. He'll, he'll do it again. The reason why God wants us to give is because when we give, we reflect what we're supposed to be reflecting, and that is that Jesus is our example. We are to be imitators of Christ as dearly loved children, the Scripture says. And so it seems plausible to understand that as Christians, we give because God gave first. He's our example, and we're to imitate that. So, so to say that a Christian who chooses not to give it's totally understandable to say fails to recognize the gift that God has given them in Christ Jesus. Paul says that this gift of Jesus was indescribable. That is that God gave in such a way that blew us out of the water. And God desires for our giving to be like that as well. But for many of us, we look at percentages We ask, uh, does my giving need to be before taxes or after taxes? We ask the question, what kind of tax break? If I give something to the church, what kind of tax break can can I plan on getting back? Listen, God said that he wanted his generosity to knock our socks off. And while we can never produce that kind of generosity because we cannot produce the person and work of Jesus Christ, God says that it should be our goal. So what does that kind of giving look like? Notice, number one, it's, it's done willingly. It's done willingly. Famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, I want to do some deep spiritual uh, walking with you. And I know some of you aren't as spiritual as I am, and I'm blowing smoke right now, by the way. But I, I want you to recognize what deep study of the Word of God can help you. Notice, for God so loved the world that he had to give, it says. For God so loved the world that he was obligated to give, right? Didn't you see that? No. It doesn't say that. Any kid with an elementary level education and literacy can see that God so loved the world that he gave. His giving was done out of a loving heart. He wanted to give, not because of the tax refund, not because he felt obligated, not because Pastor Keith really, really did a good job of telling him to give. He gave because he loved us. And so you turn that around, and if that's the mirror, if that's what's in our mirror, if you will, of God's love for us, then we turn that around and we say, For Tim so loved God that he gave. Now we can say that with our mouth until the cows come home, but but God says the way I demonstrated my love for you was this, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He gave his life up for you. And so we need to recognize that giving that, that pleases God is not giving that's done under compulsion or out of a duty out of a love that says, I love you, God. I love the gospel work ministry that you're doing. You're setting captives free. I want to be a part of that. And because I'm a captive that you've set free, out of a heart of gratitude, I want to give and I want to share that generosity with the world that needs to hear it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's done willingly. Number two, it's done joyfully. Hebrews tells us that in the midst 
of Jesus' gift that would cost him his life, that he was thinking about something. Now, right away, we, we know that Jesus, no doubt, was concerned about the pain and sorrow that this would bring. He recognized the torment physically that the crucifixion would bring upon him. He recognized of even greater value the loss of fellowship that, that he would have taken away from him because sin would be found on him, my sin and your sin, on the cross. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus went to the cross and scorned its shame with a heart of joy set before him. Listen to me. Giving is always hard. It's never easy. It will never be easy. Even if you've got the the most generous heart, it will always be hard because there's something inherent within us that is sinful that says, this is mine. Can I tell you, that's a part of human nature. Jesus shows us that that that, that kind of self-preservation is something that's inherent within us because of our what is called the imago Dei, our image-bearing of God himself, that we are existent creatures, and that's why the humanity of Christ cries out, if there's a way that this cup can pass over me, let it be the case. But Jesus rightly, instead of allowing his flesh to become an idol, says, but not my will, God, but your will be done. When we give, it's going to hurt. It's going to mean we're saying no to some things in our life and saying yes to God. And the temptation will always be as you put that money in the plate or or hit send on that automated giving, it's going to hurt. You can think of a million ways you can spend that money. But just as Jesus did, you've got to stop and say, but not my will, God, but your will be done with my money. It's got to happen that way. And it's got to be done with a joyful heart, with the joy set before us we give. Why? Because we are gluttons for punishment? No, Jesus wasn't. But Jesus recognized what the cross would do for others. And our giving is a reminder of not what I've lost, but what I've gained because others will be impacted by the grace and generosity of God himself through me. Finally, it needs to be done sacrificially. God gave his one and only son. Listen, it has been said that God gave heaven's best. God didn't give an angel. God didn't give just a human being. He gave his one and only son. That begs the question for every Christian in this place, is God getting my best in return? In the Old Testament times, the Jewish people understood this. They were commanded to bring the first of the crop and the best of the herd and give it back to God. But listen, and listen well, we live in a time where giving God leftovers is totally acceptable. And I will say this, no church will ever receive God's full blessing when we take as our own heaven's best and give back earth's reruns and leftovers. You see, that kind of giving is not worship. That is taking the cross of Jesus Christ, as the book of Hebrews says, and trampling the Son of God underfoot. So each of us have to examine today, are we willingly, joyfully, and sacrificially giving back to the Lord? And if not, why? 
Is Jesus not enough for us? Is Jesus not worth it? Do we not see it as an absolute privilege and honor to give out of gratitude of the immense blessings that God has given to us? It is the subtle distinction between giving that gains a blessing and not loses it. We've got to evaluate it. So how do we get there? Let's get to some practical things. We need to realign our practice to meet biblical standards. Some of you are, are struggling when it comes to giving because you just have not taken the time to, to build the right habits. Jim Ron put it this way, motivation can get you started, but habits what keeps you going. And there's some truth to that. And most of us find ourselves in this particular place. You, you've heard the mandate of Scripture to give. You've heard it before, and you agree. You acknowledge and affirm the ownership of God when it comes to the things you have, and you even have a distinct desire to give. I wish I could give. Some of you are saying that right now. Tim, I wish I could do it. My greatest desire would be to do that. But we become altogether distracted or inconsistent in our giving. And what's the disconnection? The disconnection is is that we have not put into practice the right habits, the holy habits of what it means to give. And you're not the first person to struggle with it. Neither am I. In the book of 1 Corinthians, turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16 in your pew Bibles, that's page 962, Paul has to teach the people with regards to this. And notice what he says in in 1 Corinthians 16, again page 962. He says the following. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. Here's the principle. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now notice there are, there are three steps to realigning our practice of giving. Number one, our giving must be planned. It must be planned. Now, I want you to write on the side of this for a moment, that word planned, two thoughts regarding this planned giving. Number one, planned giving is done regularly. Some think that New Testament giving abolishes the law of the tithe, that is the giving of 10%. But sadly, for that type of argument, there's no place in all of the New Testament that says that tithing was abolished when it comes to New Testament giving. New Testament giving was regulated just as the tithe was. There was a place to bring it, there was a plan to give it, and everyone was to do some planning and thinking on their own and then come ready to give in the temple. What was true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. Think about your giving, bring it to the place of worship so that it may be gathered up and used for the good of of, of the gospel work. Now some of us give and we don't plan on it. It's not done in a regular fashion. So we wait to see whether or not we like the show. So the first service, giving was terrible. I mean, we had sparks flying in the back, and uh, we're putting out soundboards with fire extinguishers. I'm just kidding a little bit, but it was an ugly show. It was really ugly. I tell you, I couldn't find a book of the Bible in the first service. It got bad. So giving based on that is going to be really junky. Some of you give because of the songs you sang. So we sing your song, and it's music to your ears, and, well, I'm going to give a little bit. Or some of you, because you you like the sermon, you want to tip the preacher a little something-something, you give. 
or because we put on the video screen a, a, a tear-jerking video about some amazing cause, and, and man, I, I'm compelled out of my emotion to give that. But the Bible says that giving is something that we think about long before we get to the place of worship. Why? Because as we go throughout our week, we see God's hand of provision and protection over us over and over again. We see in our lives that that He is faithful to show us His mercies that are new each and every morning. And at some point in our week, we, we should probably pause and say, you know what, God? You're a really an awesome God. And I need to respond. You've given me all of this, and might it be good for me to respond in some way? And so let me look at my time. Let me look at my talents. Let me look at my treasures. Is there something you may be asking of me to give back to you? It's not done out of an emotional appeal. It's done out of a planned heart of gratitude. Number two, it is to be done, this planned giving, reverently. It's to happen within the confines of our worship. We are to bring it together where the people are assembled together, and it's to be done together. Listen, um, in, in New Testament days, when people brought things, they usually brought things that mood and clucked and, and flapped their wings. Remember, a currency was not a given thing for many people. The currency was the livestock that they had. And so listen to me. It wasn't like you could bring in your best heifer, okay, and bring it in and hide it so that nobody could see it. Well, I, giving is private. It's between me and the Lord. No, you're bringing your best heifer in, Bob. That's great. Good for you. And it was to show the sacrifice of one with the sacrifice of another. This is where we have failed you as leaders within the church. We have said, and listen, even though we say there's nothing taboo in when it comes to God's Word, we've said, well, we understand that churches have really messed it up with regards to money. I get that. And, and we recognize that money in our culture is a pretty private thing. Not in the New Testament church it isn't. Remember in the book of Acts, so-and-so brought money in front of the entire group of people and placed it before the apostles. Not hidden, oh, by the way, here. Just so you know, we put a little in the plate. It was, here's it. And why is it, here's it? So it's an example to all others? The, The sacrifice. Well, could they get a big head? Yeah, they could. But you can get a big head serving God. You can get a big head doing a lot of things for God. We make up ways to get big heads. And yet what God says is, when you assemble together, giving, listen, is not something that is to be done in isolation, but it's a time of celebration. It's a time of celebration and where we give back to the Lord, and, and we're not apologetic about it. We're excited because the Lord continues to show us how great He is and our response to Him. That would be, listen, how we treat giving is how this would happen in worship. I saw some of you raising your hands passionately singing to the Lord, excited about what the words that you're singing. And I walk around, I say, put your hand down. That's way too flamboyant. Don't be showing others that you're excited about your relationship with God. Don't do that. Just let it be on the inside. Let it be between you and God. I recognize that money's a hard thing. But where money shouldn't be a hard thing is within the church, right? Because we don't deal with money like the world deals with money. We're dealing with a totally different currency, the grace of Almighty God. And so let's celebrate that. And God has given us this thing called money. Let's always transmit it through the grace of God, not through the paper that folds and the money that jingles. 
So it needs to be done reverently. I need to move on here. It, it needs to be done personally. Now you said, just wait a minute, Tim. You, you've lost your mind. You just said, don't let giving be private. And now you're saying, yet it's personal. Private, listen, private and personal are never the same thing. Private, when I say something's private, I take it and I bring it and I hide it only for myself. Personal says that everybody knows I've got a part to play. Does that make sense? I have a personal responsibility to preach this message to you. It's my job. It's what I've been called to do. I cannot say, I'm going to go to church today and someone's going to get up and preach. No, I'm the one guy today that walked into the, into the sanctuary and said, I've got to give the message. It's my personal thing. Now, private is, is that I turn my back and say, all right, Tim, this is what we're going to do. And, and yeah, that, that's private. Personal is I take responsibility. Paul says that each of us, each one of you, listen, you cannot stand idly by and allow others to give while you enjoy the benefits of a free ride. Because you're not going to stand with Village Bible Church on the day of judgment when God says, what did you do with the money I gave you? You will stand by yourself. And a New Testament steward is not one who hides behind someone else's giving or enjoys somebody else's giving, but who celebrates and saying, you know what? I may not be able to give what the guy next to me gives, but I'm going to give nonetheless. And Jesus makes sure of that. The widow with her mites and, and, and the guy that brings in the bag loads of money. Both are giving, but one is of greater sacrifice. It needs to be proportional. Notice it says in the text that, that as he may prosper, the NIV says, in keeping with his income. Many of you would say, well, the Old Testament spoke about a tithe, which is 10%. And that's a good place to start. The New Testament never tells us that that practice is no longer valid, but what it does say in the New Testament is that we move from a percentage to a person in Jesus Christ. Far too many of us think about percentages and get hung up on it, but let me just tell you, let's talk about 10% for a moment. Some of you are going to go out to Chili's today, and after the end of 30 minutes of work, you're going to get a hamburger. That's okay. I mean, we're talking Chili's. It's not great, but it's okay. You're going to eat those chips and salsa, and at the end of the day, after your bellies are a little fuller, the bill is going to come, and it's going to say on the bottom of the amount, gratuity. And you're going to be able to feel confident. Well, I gave my 10% to the Lord today. But Charlie, my waiter, he did a good job for a half an hour. Now, granted, he didn't die for my sins. But he did bring me that extra 32 ounces of sweet goodness of Coca-Cola. I think I'll give him a 15% tip. Again, that's totally fine for an unbeliever. But brothers and sisters... Is Jesus Christ a waiter who's done a good job or is he the king of our universe? Are we judging him on his service based on, well, what has he done for me lately? Without risking sounding arrogant. And I hope you know my heart. Over the years, God has grown Amanda and I in our giving that about 10 years ago, maybe it was a little longer than that, God had a moment with me where he brought me down low. And he asked the question, you talk a big game, Badal. You talk about how important I am. But I don't see it. 
I don't see it in the way you give. You say he's number one. And God put on my heart, if, he, if I'm really number one, show it in your, in your service. Show it in your uh, giving. And I made a decision with Amanda. We made this decision that from that moment on, as hard as it would be, our biggest expenditure, if you will, in our monthly budget would be to give back to the Lord. Bigger than our mortgage, bigger than our vacations, bigger than anything else. And I said, God, there's no way you can do that. There's no way that can be done. And I will tell you, look at me, I have not missed a single meal. Okay? We have enjoyed our life. God has been so gracious. And I don't say that, listen to me, I don't say that to say, I don't, and I don't do this very often, look at me. What I'm saying is I am a trophy of God's grace. And what God can do for me, no doubt God can do for you. You will never go wrong in giving back to God. Never. And we have endured a lot of difficulties. We've had surgeries for our children. We've had high deductibles and things. And I sit there and always the temptation is, well, just lower my level of giving. And God says, can you not trust me? And we have all a bit a little difficult at times, but he has proven himself utterly faithful. So how do we respond? I need to get done. Not like you need to go home and see the Bears game. They're terrible anyway. But, <laughs> but let's respond with this, Okay. What are the practices we need to put into our lives? What are the following steps? Let's draw out some applications very quickly. First of all, before I get to the points, let me tell you this. Take some time this week and pray about what I've talked about. Pray about it. See if I'm blowing smoke or if that's really what God's Word says. Because if it is, we got some work to do. If it isn't, then don't do anything about it. So here's the four things I want you to do. Number one, take the lordship assessment. We are quick to say that Jesus is our all in all. But is that really true? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Eugene Peterson in his message paraphrase says this, test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along uh, taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. When was the last time in this week of Thanksgiving you stopped and said, Lord, thank you for my job. Lord, thank you for another paycheck. Lord, thank you for the health to be able to get up and go to work. Lord, thank you for the car you've given me to to move my family to and fro, that we can go to our work, that we can get our kids to school, that we can go and visit family. Lord, thank you for our church. And Lord, thank you for the home that we're in. Thank you for our friends. Lord, you are the giver of all good things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But not stopping at thank you, but then asking the question, you didn't just give us this and say, it's yours, don't worry about it. You said, I give this to you as an investment that I want you to pour back in. And so, are you living a life that declares the lordship of Christ? Here's a simple test I'd ask you. Hand your checkbook to someone else. Hand it to someone who isn't a believer. And ask them to describe what they would say you look like from the money you spend. And the question I have for you is, Will your checkbook convict you of being a devoted, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ or a devoted follower of yourself? 
Do the test. Number two, get financial advice to make giving possible. I recognize many of you hear this message. You're motivated to give. You look forward to doing it at some point in the future. You get home, and the stack of bills is overwhelming. And you're brokenhearted about it. And you say, I wish we could do this, but our financial commitments that we've already got on the books, I can't get beyond it. Well, I want you to know we want to help you. We don't want you to struggle in this issue. We want to help you. And over the past years, we have helped people get out of debt so they're no longer in bondage to this issue. We've used things. We're not the smart guys on on it. We have found material that absolutely works. Crown financial, financial peace. These classes have helped dozens of our people set budgets and find intuitive ways to conquer your debt quickly. If you are struggling with debt, you need to put on your friendship registry or talk to one of the pastors. I need help now. Humble yourself and say, I have fallen to the lie and I'm tired of living it the devil's way. I want to start living God's way. And we will get those classes set up. And I can assure you there are people in our midst who will say we were in bondage and now we are free. Free to give, free to be generous, free to enjoy the things God has given. Number three, start acting on faith, not fear. If there's anything you take away from this message, this is it. So listen very carefully. Much of this issue of stewardship is that you and I are afraid to trust God with our money. So the thinking goes like this. If I give a certain amount, then I might run out at the end if I've given at the beginning what what God is asking me to. And if I give, then I won't be able to receive this thing that God, or that, that I want, because I've given to God. And let me remind you of something as Christians. I'm talking to the believers in this place. We have all trusted our life and our eternity to a God, who's the God of the universe, who says that we can have eternity by trusting him in faith, right? I believe that this God whom I've never met is the hope for eternity for me. That if I bow the knee to Jesus Christ, that he will give me a life of eternal bliss in a place of his presence called heaven forever. I believe that. Now that's hard to do, but I do that with joy in my heart. The same one of us who thinks that way then says to that same God, while I trust you with my eternity, I cannot trust you with the temporary. I trust you with eternity, but I can't trust you about the end of next month. I trust you that you saved my sins, or saved me from my sins, and cleansed me of all unrighteousness, but I can't trust you with my budget. You are totally untrustworthy in this, but you're totally trustworthy in that. And we think God is pleased with that type of thinking. That is fear, and God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. And he has given us that sound mind to know that greater is God than the one who is in the world. And so we got to start acting by faith, and faith means taking a step. And the life of faith begins with one step. And what I'm asking you to do is, is to test God in this. The book of Malachi, the only time God says, put me to a test, Malachi says, test me. Will I not open the floodgates of heaven upon you? Will I not stop the devourer from devouring everything in you? Will you not trust me in this? You trust me with eternity, but you won't with your monthly finances? It's hogwash. Stop believing the lies of the devil. Finally, we need to be all in. Keith's talked about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I would be remiss not to say that we've got a great opportunity in this last month of this year 
to get involved in this issue of giving. Now, I get that we want to hit a certain number, and, and there's reasons for that. We have fallen behind as a church, and, and, and yet I'm not concerned about it because here's what I know. If we're doing what God wants, then God will fund it. He always does. God never says, man, I really wish we could help Village Bible Church out. They're doing a great thing, but we can't forward them any more money. We're out. God funds those things. He takes care of those things that when they're being done well. So here's the thing. The final amount is important. But for me, the greater thing is that those little men that Keith puts together, I don't know how he does it, but he puts those little people on the screen. My prayer for you is that each one of those represents each of our families, that whether it's $50 or $50,000 that we would be willing to look and say, what can I give sacrificially to the Lord? How can I put God to a test and allow the floodgates of heaven to open up over me? How can I do that? And what I want to see at the end of December is every one of those little happy people be filled up representing that all of us said we're all in. We're going to be a part of this. Let me tell you something. When God's people unify together and do something, God says, I'm there with them. I am doing that with them. So let's get involved. Let's get plugged in. Let me close with this. On my uh, vacation some years ago, we were down visiting Amanda's brother, and he took us to the Dallas-Fort Worth Zoo. And I don't remember anything about that trip. I don't remember if the giraffes were cute. I don't remember if the penguins were flopping around. I don't remember anything of that trip. But at about three-quarters of the way through the trip at the zoo, I was walking through, and a, a um, display, a poster, caught my attention. It was a big mural, and it had some words on it. And I sat there, and I was struck. First of all, I knew that it was probably written by some crazy environmentalist who loved hugging trees. And I had to get beyond that, okay? And once I got beyond the tree-hugging thing, I looked at the words... And I was mesmerized by it because I'd never thought of it in this way before. So I took a picture of it. It said, stewardship is not a spectator sport. And while that may help get trees planted in the world, I took it as a call for me as a believer. And I recognize if God has given me something, I cannot sit idly by and not do anything about it. And that's what God's calling us to. Not to sit on the sidelines, but to get involved and, and, and be all in for the cause of Christ, not only with our time and our talents, you're doing that, and praise God for that, but also our treasures, as difficult as that may be. It may mean we've got to go out a little less. It may mean there's a few less tr uh, gifts under the tree. Let me tell you something. The only thing that gifts under the tree tell our kids is that they're more important than God. And so let's remember and let's tell our kids. Let me, let me help you with what the Badals say. The Badals have made it abundantly clear each and every Christmas since our kids have been able to hear it, God gets first place. And we love giving gifts, and I'm not saying that isn't there, and we love that. It's fun, but God always gets the best. It's his birthday, by the way. So let's never forget that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and, and I just pray, Lord, I've talked too much, and and, and said probably more than I should have. But Lord, I believe what you've laid on my heart is, is what you would have said. So Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would take my feeble attempts at, at trying to communicate and, and you would impact lives. Lord, I know there are some today who will get up and say, that's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't like coming. And Lord, I don't know what to do with that. 
I want them to be here, but Lord, I know I got to preach truth before I worry about public opinion. And so, Lord, work on that individual who, who's angered by what I've said, who's, who's, who feels that I've crossed the line. Lord, let them see that, that the line that has been crossed has been, if you will, by the one who hasn't given to you in return of what you've given to us. So, Lord, work on our hearts and challenge us. And whether we're given a million dollars to this place or, or, or nothing, that each of us would ask the fundamental question, you've given us your best. What are we called to give in return? And, Lord, let us do it with celebration in our hearts because you do love a cheerful giver. You do love it when your children worship you by giving back what you've so graciously given to us. So, Lord, work on our hearts, challenge us, impact us. Let us do the hard things, Lord, so that we may honor you. Lord, I thank you for the patience of your people in the hard teaching that has been laid upon them today. Now, Lord, send us off. Bring back the time that, that maybe has been lost to the other things of today so that we can see that you are a God who is utterly faithful. Now, send us forth and let us be rich in generosity. Let us be rich in our fellowship. Let us be rich in our love with those who we share this room with today. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.